know, love, like I said, it's so foundational. It's like the one thing that we as humans, as animals, that we all need and that really truly connects us um, both with ourselves and with others. You're listening to the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast, the show that blends science and heart to bring you evidence-based tips and tricks for cultivating a healthy, wealthy, and meaningful life. Now, here's your host, therapist, yogi, and fellow full-life balancer, Dr. Caitlin Harkis. Hi there, welcome back to Wisdom for Wellbeing. We are talking all things love and relationship today. You know, it's perhaps um, appropriate timing that we've just gotten through the Valentine's Day period, whatever that means or does not mean to you. So today we're talking with the amazing Jordan Green. Jordan is a licensed clinical therapist in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and in addition to her work with individuals and couples, Jordan provides inspirational and educational content on love and relationships. On her therapy Instagram page, she is known as at the dot love dot therapist, and she publishes there with really wonderful, useful tips and tricks quite prolifically. She's actually got over 170,000 followers there. She's also opened up a number of new resources, including a membership site, so you can head to jordanandrea.com and check out her love therapist resources there too. Of course, all of this will be linked in the show notes, but without further ado, let me introduce you to Jordan now. Jordan, welcome to the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast. I am delighted to have you here today. Thank you so much for coming on the show with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. And we have such a fantastic conversation around, you know, relationships and how we communicate, manage conflict plan. But I guess just to start, would you mind sharing with listeners a little bit about who you are and the amazing work that you're doing? Yeah, so I am a licensed therapist and a coach. I started doing therapy a few years ago after my undergraduate. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And both my mom and my stepmom are therapists. And I realized that I kind of, I think I might subconsciously knew for most of my life that that's what I wanted to do, but I never really like truly admitted it to myself. And so I went to grad school and I started working with people. I would work with individuals, couples, and families doing counseling here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And about a year ago, I expanded and I realized that that all of this time that I was spending helping people um, was amazing. I loved doing the individual work, but I realized that I could be helping so many more people. And so I created the therapy Instagram account, The Love Therapist, and it's grown and expanded. And so I've Um, started doing a lot of other fun kind of creative stuff through that more recently. And this is particularly important for listeners. So the love therapist on Instagram, go and connect with Jordan there because the account is amazing. And love is a really key message, I think, in all of the work that you're doing. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's like kind of like the center, the foundation of everything that I talk about and everything that I do, especially on this page. Why, why is love so important for you? And, you know, it probably is for a lot of us, but maybe if you're able to articulate what it means for you, that would be connecting for us. <laughs> yeah, I think 
you know, love, like I said, it's so foundational. It's like the one thing that we as humans, as animals that we all need and that really truly connects us um, both with ourselves and with others. And love is such a powerful healing force. And I've realized throughout my life that true healing only happens through love. And um, since love, I've just realized it's such a powerful healing force. And so that's, that's why love, it's just like, love is everything that is important in life is love. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because I've heard this from an, a number of different um, people who work in sort of the therapeutic field and, and love, you know, described as healing, like how powerful. And when you mentioned humans and animals, sort of before we started the interview, we were both talking about our cats being a little bit needy and attention. And, you know, you have a new puppy and, you know, in regards to this primal, connecting i think that's an incredibly powerful vantage point and way of way of framing it for us <laughs> yeah yeah i mean they've done studies on um, babies or children who don't receive love and how that affects their health how that affects their well-being their development um and we i mean we all just need love we all need love so <laughs> so much and yeah there are so many um, so many, when we don't receive that love, it's, it's, doesn't feel good. Right. No. <laughs> and painful. It's, it's painful. And, you know, we're talking about relationships today and a lot of the conflict in relationships, I believe is just because we don't feel truly seen or heard or loved. There's just that, that misunderstanding, that disconnect there. And, um, so the more that we can, show love, express love, the more we allow ourselves to receive love, usually the healthier our relationships are. That's really important. And I guess with that, should we start with maybe talking about what are some common communication difficulties, you know, whether it is expressing love or kind of showing love, where, where would some common communication difficulties lie? Because it's different, you know, when we're kids, we might ask for a hug or cry or, you know, cling on to mom or dad's legs or something. But as we get older, we communicate things differently. And it's not just about love is that it's communicating about a relationship, which has so many dimensions. Yeah, that's such a great point. You mentioned kind of as children, we tend to communicate more non-verbally. And um, that's, that's so true. Like studies have shown that anywhere between 70 and 93% of our communication is nonverbal. And so we, we talk about communication a lot and learning how to communicate. And typically when, when we say that word communication, I think, you know, I, my mind goes directly to words, like using words to communicate. But I've realized more recently the importance of that nonverbal communication and learning how to communicate effectively in a non-verbal way as well, whether it's making eye contact, turning towards someone, you know, what does your posture look like? Are you open or are your arms crossed and kind of shut down? And, um, and so you asked about communication difficulties. I think a big one is not truly listening. Like not, a lot of us don't learn how to truly listen to others. And like we talked about, a lot of conflict is about not feeling seen and not feeling heard. And when we don't feel seen and heard, we don't feel loved. And so something that I'm seeing more and more of nowadays is people on their phones, watching TV, or just caught up in their own minds when someone's talking to them, and they're not truly present or listening. And if you just think about, like, how does it make you feel when you're talking to someone or you're trying to get their attention? 
and they're not listening. They're just completely distracted. It probably makes you feel like super invalidated and misunderstood and like they don't care about you. And so when you're not listening, it's not giving someone your full attention, you're turning away from them. And um, in couples work, we call this turning away from bids for connection. And a bid for connection is basically an attempt to get your attention. And it's something as simple as asking, how was your day? Saying, hey, check this out over here. Like, did you see this? Or asking someone a question. And um, there is a institute called the Gottman Institute, and they've done research on thousands of couples. And when they did research on this topic, they found that about, I think it was six years, they studied couples six years after their wedding, and couples who divorced, um, they had only turned toward each other during the study 33% of the time, which means that they were turning away from their partner, which means like they weren't like responding when their, their partner was trying to get their attention, they weren't making eye contact, they were just turning away from them 67% of the time, which is a lot. Like if that's over half the time, they weren't giving their partner their attention when their partner was seeking it. And so the couples who stayed together in the study turned towards each other 80, 86% of the time. So the point of that, like the, what that study showed me is like, if your want, partner wants your attention, if someone wants your attention, give it to them. Like show people that you respect them and care about them by putting your phone down and you know, turning away from what you're doing and giving them your full attention. It's something that's so simple, but can have a huge, huge, huge impact on your relationships. That's incredible. And those are incredible statistics. And it's so interesting when you mentioned in the very beginning, you know, body language, that this is something we kind of grow up maybe demonstrating that suddenly our phones or our heads or minds or whatever it may be are grabbing us and here, turning towards and actually engaging with our partner is one of the most protective things of, of our relationship. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's so simple and you can see it. You'll notice like if you go to restaurants or just sit in public or at the airport and just people watch and you know, what are, what are people doing? If their kids trying to get their attention, if their partner's trying to get their attention, if their friends trying to get their attention, are they putting what they're doing down and giving them their full attention are they distracted, looking elsewhere? Are they ignoring them? Are they responding? And it's, you'll, you can learn a lot about a person and a lot about someone's dynamics just by kind of observing the very simple things in their behavior and whether or not they're turning towards each other. It also indicates to me, you know, when we're saying love, like this sounds like um, a verb, like a doing, like showing love by showing attention. Yeah, yeah. I often say love's a verb. Love's a verb. And, you know, we, we show our love through action and it yeah. takes daily action, right? <laughs> like it takes effort to actually express that love and show it. We can feel it, but the, the key here is learning how to communicate that, how to communicate it also in a way that helps our partner to feel loved. I don't know if you've heard of the five love languages. Yeah. Would you be able to describe that for listeners? Cause it's brilliant. Um, it's a concept that um, was founded by um, someone named Gary Chapman, and I, I'm pretty sure he's a chaplain, um, but he um, has come up with what he calls the five love languages. And what they are, are basically, he's broken it down into these are five ways that we express love and that we feel loved. And so the first one, let's see, there are five of them. One is acts of service, which is like doing something nice for someone, whether it's, you know, taking out the trash or making them a meal. Another one is giving gifts. The third one is quality time. So the attention thing is a big one for quality time, just giving someone 
your attention, making efforts to make time for them and giving them your full attention when you're with them. Um, the fourth one is words of affirmation. So if words of affirmation is one of your you know, top love languages, you really love to receive compliments um, and just communication is super important. And the fifth one, let's give you that. Physical touch, maybe? Physical or? touch, yeah, that, yeah, <laughs> that's a big one. <laughs> physical touch, yeah. And just, you know, I think we all, you know, physical touch is so important. And so with those love languages, because that comes back to communication then, doesn't it? Like that people, you know, are speaking, and I, I can't show everyone the air quotes right now, but speaking different languages. So how do we kind of communicate taking this into account or what would we need to know or do to, to use this information? So the website, the five love they have a quiz where you can take the quiz. It's a free quiz and figure out what are my top love languages. And you can also think about like, well, what are some of the things I complain about the most? Um, and if you're trying to figure out like, what's your partner's love language without directly asking them, um, usually the thing that you'll notice them complaining about the most is the thing that they're, um, the area in which they're not feeling loved and how they're wanting to receive love. So for example, if someone's always complaining about the dishes, like my guess would be their love language is acts of service. If someone's complaining, like you never tell me you love me and the other person's like, yeah, I say I love you all the time. I'm guessing their love language is words of affirmation, right? Because you know they're wanting to receive that love in a verbal way. And so um, just thinking about what are some of the ways that I receive love? What are some of the ways um, that my partner likes to receive love or my child, or I think he's written a book for children as well, um, for families. It totally changed my relationship with my dad when I started thinking about, okay, what is his love language? How does he like to receive love? And um, when I was able to start expressing that in a way that, love in a way that he actually felt like he um, could receive it, I feel like it really, improved and helped our relationship a lot. That's pretty incredible because it shows it's, you know, when we are talking about relationship communication, often we kind of go romantic relationships, but it's our relationships as a whole that affect our well-being and our health. It's not, it's not strictly romantic. It's our family relationships, our friendships, relationships at work too. Yeah, a lot of what we're talking about applies to all kinds of relationships. Yeah, so Jordan, we've got sort of like turning towards and like listening and connecting with people, figuring out the love language. Are there any other communication difficulties that people commonly have or, you know, if they're kind of going to use words or to articulate something that's going on for them, are there particular struggles that people maybe come up with more commonly? I'm sure there's a plethora, but any common ones? Yeah, another big one that I can think of is um like complaining <laughs> this is what i hear about a lot <laughs> from couples is complaining and criticism a lot of complaints are expressed as criticism which immediately causes the other person to feel attacked to get defensive and so you'll notice that a lot of complaints or criticisms start with you like you didn't do the dishes or you forgot to do that or you don't care about me and so just a really small little communication tip is instead of using you statements, try using I statements. And so a good formula that I teach my clients is I feel blank about blank. I need blank. And so when you're, when you're communicating what you need, it's important to use an affirmative need, which means that you say what you do want instead of what you don't want. So an example would be, I'm feeling overwhelmed. Do you mind helping with the dishes tonight? Um, instead of, 
like saying something like, you don't even care about me. You could say, I need you to spend more time with me and ask me about my day. That would really help me to feel loved. And so turning those you statements around um, and using those I statements helps to kind of take a, hold a sense of responsibility and um, helps your, the other partner to feel safe because you're um, expressing directly what you need. And that's really important because a lot of times we're really indirective or passive in how we communicate. We just expect our partners to read our minds. I can't tell you how many times I've heard, I shouldn't have to tell them what I need. They should just know. And I hear that all the time. And then resentment builds up because they don't know, like the other person doesn't know and they didn't do what you were wanting. But it's really just because you never communicated with them about it, right? And so I was, I was actually talking with a couple about this yesterday and there was just this light bulb moment for them that they'd been setting each other up to fail. And by using I statements and directly communicating what they want and what they needed, they could start setting each other up for success. And so you're essentially giving your partner a recipe for how they can support you. And it's just so important to be direct and open and transparent in our communication. That's a really beautiful way of putting it, setting them up for success that, you know, we might feel like by perhaps not being so direct that or being kinder or that being direct is scary or confrontational. But if it's done with the method you describe, your real, the real affirmative and the I statements that we're actually helping our partner help us and sort of move that relationship forward in a connecting, successful manner. Yeah. And I've noticed a lot of times when people are um, like in conflict or they just feel like there's a disagreement, they're in attack defend mode. So their sympathetic nervous systems are activated, which means they're in fight or flight. Um, they're usually trying to prove themselves right. They're working against each other. And when we feel attacked, we get defensive. And when we're defensive, like when both people are hurt and feel self-righteous, the conversation just doesn't go anywhere good. And so it's almost like you're on two teams working against each other. And um, I like to help people imagine that like when there's something that you're disagreeing about or you're having trouble communicating about, like think of yourself as being on the same team working together to find an answer. And so you can each express your thoughts and your feelings without um, attack or defensiveness. And it just creates a, a sense of safety and support and allows you to work together to find even if it's just a mutual understanding. Oftentimes, you know, we're trying to work towards some sort of compromise, but even if it's just finding mutual understanding. Um, yeah, just working together on the same team. What a beautiful metaphor that like this partnership or relationship in whatever form is actually the team. And then, you know, the, the problem is the external, like trying to solve or find that mutual understanding, like having that communication, that dialogue and that frame around working together with the difficult or against the difficulty rather than you each being the opposing side. Yeah, exactly. It really changes the dynamic of the conversation, it changes the tone, and it just, it creates a sense of emotional safety when you feel like, okay, we're working, we're working together. And sometimes we don't, you know, it helps to start the conversation in that way of, you know, hey, maybe it's even like, hey, I'm starting to feel a little bit resentful. Can we, you know, have a conversation about how I'm feeling and how we can um, work through this together? And, you know, rather than, hey, you know, what you did, you know, bothered me. I didn't like it when you do this. Um, you know, rather than kind of like this more of like me versus you, I need you to do, you know, you need to do something different for me. It's like, Hey, this is kind of bothering me. Can we work together 
to um, to work through this and to support each other. That's really interesting. So grabbing the language listeners around, the, like framing it as a together so that your partner is coming on board. Cause you said, you know, often we get into this attack defense mode and the sympathetic nervous system kind of comes online. Would you mind describing what that feels like so that listeners kind of have a, a framework to go, Oh, I'm there. Or, Oh, my partner might be there so we can work on regulating. Yeah, definitely. So, um, Typically, we have two sides of our nervous system. We have the parasympathetic, which is the rest and digest, or it's also kind of called the, the safe and social part of our nervous system. Um, because when we're in the parasympathetic, we our prefrontal cortex is online, we're able to think rationally, we're able to, we feel calm, we're able to communicate clearly. When our sympathetic nervous system is activated, a lot of times like our heart rate will speed up, um, sometimes we start to get a little bit hot, we'll, we'll get warmer. Um, we may start to feel agitated. Our brain, like our prefrontal cortex, goes offline a little bit more. So we're not thinking as clearly. Your brain may feel foggy. You may kind of go blank. Um, and sometimes you'll feel nervous or jittery, but you'll just notice that you, um, that maybe you're starting to feel upset. And so when we start to feel this way, I usually recommend for people to take a break um, and take a 20 minute break. And I always recommend 20 minutes because that's the average amount of time that it takes for our nervous system to return back to a baseline, to really get our parasympathetic back online um, and to get back to that rest and digest safe and social state. And so taking a 20 minute break to, whether it's just taking some deep breaths um, go for a walk, listen to some calming music or do whatever helps you to calm down before coming back to the conversation and approaching it in more of a calm and, um, and in more of a calm state. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So it's like noticing when you're starting to have these reactions and particularly with that prefrontal cortex kind of, you know, losing blood flow and you're not thinking as clearly, I imagine then it becomes harder to be as receptive in the conversation or to engage in the way that we might want to hold ourselves to and use some of these tips and tricks that you're sharing with us today. Yeah. And so if you notice yourself, you know, getting a little bit, we call it flooded. Um, getting flooded if your sympathetic nervous system's getting a little bit activated. Um, you know, take some time to self-soothe, do some deep breaths. When you extend your exhale longer than the inhale, it activates the parasympathetic nervous system. So it helps to helps you to relax. So take some deep breaths and extend your exhale. If you notice that your partner is starting to get activated or someone who you're communicating with, offer just to like hey, let's just take a break for a second. Let's take some deep breaths together or just take a second to gather yourselves. Um, we often call these, like I call these repair attempts, attempts to repair that connection, whether it's repairing the connection with yourself and then repairing the connection with the other person. So we can regulate our, we can self-regulate our nervous systems or we can co-regulate, which means um, like as babies, we were only able to co-regulate with an adult or with another person, our nervous systems didn't, we didn't know how to self-regulate, but as adults, often we can, we've learned how to co-regulate. So you can offer to co-regulate. Maybe that looks like a hug or offering to slow down and remind each other why you love each other when you're getting upset or a compliment or, you know, a, like bringing some humor into the conversation or offering to hold hands, just any attempt to reconnect, slow down, 
um, remind yourselves that you're on the same team, that you love each other, and um, then you can move forward from there. That's a really nice reminder that, you know, we can, we can do this regulation solo or together. And, and that co-regulation is important too. like that sense of we are looking out for our partner. We're in it together. I imagine this is different for different people. Like this experience might be more or less intense depending on histories and personal characteristics. And I, I guess with that, would you be open to just maybe describing to listeners what attachment means? Because I imagine that comes up differently depending on attachment styles or, you know, histories for, for each of us in relationship. Yeah. So attachment styles, um, attachment theory was founded by a psychologist named John Bowlby. And he did some research with his colleague, Mary Ainsworth, um, on infant-parent relationships. And that provided the framework for the different attachment styles. And so the basis of attachment theory is that our early childhood experiences form the foundation for our adult relationships. And we develop attachment styles in response to how our adult caregivers interacted with us. And so we can see attachment, like what is attachment? It's just simply a bond with another person. So attachment styles describe how we bond to others and how we relate to them. And our attachment begins as babies and it's driven by our parents' responsiveness to us and their ability to support and nurture and care for us. So if our caregivers were accessible and attentive, we formed what we call a secure or just a strong attachment. And if our caregivers were not there for us when we needed them, or if they showed up inconsistently, um, we would experience anxiety. And that would lead to more of an insecure attachment style, which would be um, an anxious attachment style or an avoidant or a disorganized attachment style. And, um, and a lot of, you know, something I always like to mention is that um, attachment styles can, I like to think of attachment styles as a continuum because a lot of times we try to like put ourselves into these boxes of like, this is my attachment style, but they're really very dynamic and fluid, which means that they can change over time. They can change based on the context. So you may have one attachment style when it comes to like romantic relationships, you may have a different one in a different context when in more of like a work context or with family or with friends. And um, there can also be a lot of like shame or guilt that people will experience around like if they have an insecure attachment style. And um, I always want to offer like some self-compassion and just a different perspective that we are so adaptive in our attachment styles and our behaviors make total sense given our experiences. And so if you've experienced trauma, of course that, you know, changes the way that you bond to and relate to others. And our attachment styles just really describe how we seek safety. That's a really important point that it's safety seeking and that it's in response to something going on. So depending on difficulties or, you know, easefulness that we've had in different contexts, we're going to change how we relate to others. And it sounds like you're saying it all makes a lot of sense. And it's something that we can shift and probably shift in the context of, of love and then, you know, a supportive relationship. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely possible if you have more of an avoidant or disorganized or anxious attachment style to develop more of a secure attachment because our way of relating to other people isn't fixed, right? It's like it's we, we're changing beings, we're always changing. And so especially if we're putting some conscious intention toward um, our attachment style and taking certain small steps to heal and create new, pa new patterns, new habits, um, 
we can find secure it, well and especially like we can find security but especially if we have secure and responsive and respectful and supportive and loving relationships if we're we find other people who have secure attachment to relate to have relationships that are supportive and safe um, it helps us to learn to adapt and be and have more stability and security in how we're relating to others and so that's why therapy can be really helpful it's a safe place to form secure attachments to work through trauma to learn skills for developing a secure attachment style and with that then sort of sense of developing in a relationship, whether it's therapy or different, you know, secure relationships we have in our lives, going back to that point you made around co-regulation, is it this experience of being with someone who's able to go through that period of managing, you know, any sort of sympathetic nervous system fight or flight response we have with us so that we're kind of learning that feeling and that process and that, you know, there's like a physical embodiment of it? Yeah, exactly. If we are, you know, if we're in a relationship with someone who is able to relate to us in a secure way, whose nervous system is very regulated, it will help us to learn how to regulate. Um, a lot of the work in developing a secure attachment um, is also processing past trauma, processing grief and anger and other emotions, working on reparenting ourselves and meeting our own needs and building self-trust. And um, it's hard to to build a secure attachment with someone else if we don't have self-trust. And so um, building self-trust, healing shame, um, building our self-esteem, creating times for just play, like play with others, especially as children, if we didn't have the opportunity to play, if we didn't have a safe space to play, if the environment was um, just not, didn't allow for that playfulness, we can do that as adults. We can create time for, for fun and joy and creativity and play in our relationships. And um, that can really help us to develop more of a secure attachment because we learn that, you know, play is, is safe. It's, it's a, you know, if we're in a playful mood, we're, we're feeling safe. And another thing that really is important in learning to develop a secure attachment is learning how to set boundaries. Um, and then of course, just like working on communication skills on how we communicate, like we've been talking about today. Brilliant. I think that's really important points and takeaways. If anyone's going, oh, maybe when I, you know, try and bring up a conflict with my partner or a challenge or a difficulty, I feel like my nervous system takes hold or I don't necessarily, um, have success with the I statements and the affirmative responses, maybe it's worth going, okay, is something going on here? What do I need to do to regulate my, my nervous system and how do I go about this and kind of that connection of play. And as you said, reparenting, and you made a reference to self-compassion as well earlier, like this idea of, you know, being kind and caring towards ourselves. Would, would we be able to just talk through maybe how that can be cultivated? Cause that regardless of our attachment style is such an important takeaway, this reparenting self-compassion, showing up to ourselves with kindness, the way we might want to be ideally showing up to others in relationship. Yeah, it's interesting if we just observe, start to observe how you speak to yourself and observe the ways in which you, like you, you, you speak to yourself in your head, the ways in which you treat yourself. Um, people always say like, do you treat yourself like someone that you love? Would you treat someone else the way that you, would you say to someone else the things that you say to yourself? 
And I found that, you know, oftentimes we tend to be very self-critical. Sometimes I'll ask in our first session, I usually ask most of my clients, like, what are some of your strengths? What are some of the things that you love about yourself? And sometimes people can't even come up with one thing that they love about themselves. And that just shows that, um, you know, perhaps we weren't taught how to, how to love ourselves, how to speak kindly to ourselves, especially if we didn't um, have caregivers or role models around us growing up who, you know, who truly love themselves and demonstrated that self-care and that self-compassion. It's something that we then have to learn and we have to practice. And so if we notice ourselves being really hard on ourselves in certain ways, um, you know, just having more of that self-compassion and that acceptance of, okay, you know, I think self-compassion often starts with acceptance. Oftentimes we resist certain things about ourselves or certain ways that we are, certain behaviors. And um, I, you know, I like to talk about and with internal family systems theory is, is a model that I use a lot in my, with my individual clients. And one of like the very basic premises of, of, of internal family systems is um, the idea that all of our parts have good intent, that they're all trying to help us in some way. So if there's a part of us that we feel like is self-destructive or very critical, recognizing that it's, you know, it's adapted. It's, it's maybe there to try to protect us from certain hurt or pain or trauma and um, recognizing that it just, it's trying to help us, but maybe it's way of doing that isn't helpful right now. But even just recognizing that all of the different parts of us are adaptive, they're trying to help us, maybe our strategies aren't helpful, but can help us to have more self-compassion towards the part of us that maybe are highly critical or um, maybe there are certain like bad habits or self-destructive tendencies that we might have, but having just more compassion. Could listeners maybe do this in like an exercise where they take away like after this podcast and maybe write down different sort of parts and kind of go, oh, okay, this is what I'm working with. And just because, you know, these thoughts or judgments or whatever are coming up, it sounds like you're saying, well, that was adaptive in a certain context. It doesn't necessarily mean it's true now or that it's helpful now, but kind of holding its own little bubble or space or what, what could we do to kind of practice some of this? <laughs> Yeah, and sometimes that helps. I mean, journaling is a great practice because it allows us to kind of see our thoughts externally on paper, and it can help us to have more of like an, an understanding and perspective on what's what's going on in our minds. So journaling is a really great practice for that, and um, and trying to maybe you know identify are these parts trying to where are these parts trying to protect me from? Are they protecting me? Like anxiety, anxiety might be a protector if we have a part that we feel like is more controlling or has a hard time relaxing and letting go, that would be a protective part. And so you'll notice that a lot of your parts are just kind of trying to protect you in some way. And, um, and so maybe again, maybe their strategies aren't helpful, um, but it can, that can help to bring more self-compassion. And then of, of course, well, and the, another thing is that like a lot of these strategies we, we think that change happens when, when we're critical of ourselves. We think, well, if I'm not criticizing myself or if I'm not being hard on myself for this or that, then I'm not going to change. And, but the truth is that, like we talked about in the very beginning of this podcast, I've learned that healing happens through love. Change happens through love. And so can we move towards, you know, what we want rather than away from 
like focus instead of focusing on what we don't want and what we're trying to change focusing on what we do want and you know changing through love for ourselves for through compassion for ourselves rather than through criticism and so writing you know, i always also one of my favorite practices is writing a love letter to yourself um, that's a really really good practice because even if you can't come up with a list of things that you love about yourself um, it can help us to kind of shift our perspective a little bit when we write a love letter to ourselves. That sounds beautiful. And what a beautiful practice for listeners to be able to take away this idea that, you know, we can't, you know, antagonize or belittle ourselves into changing and shifting and connecting. But if we kind of love ourselves into it, that's a real embraceful and compassionate, compassionate way of evoking change and grounding. And a love letter sounds like a really beautiful and romantic way to, um, way to start one's relationship with oneself in a different, in a different light. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really, it's a fun exercise to do. And I, you know, I, I like to make it a consistent practice, right? We can write a love letter to ourselves once, but what if you started a monthly practice of writing a love letter to yourself? And the beautiful thing about love letters is like I said, even if you're having trouble finding, like tapping into love for yourself, um, it's a way to even just practice acceptance or understanding of like, oh my gosh, I really see Jordan, how you're have, why you're having such a hard time right now. That's so hard. You know, you are really going through a lot and just empathizing with yourself. Empathizing is a great, you know, step towards validating your own feelings. Empathizing, validating um, is a step towards acceptance and showing yourself love. So empathizing, kind of understanding what is going on for you and going, okay, well, that makes sense. Like, let's, let's work with that. Let's meet ourselves almost where we are. And then I imagine from the love letter, we might start to show up a little bit differently and communicate a little bit differently than in our relationships, which will have then positive reinforcement in regards to how we're engaging, connecting and loving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So where can listeners soak up more wisdom and connect specifically with you more? The best place to find me and connect with me is on Instagram at at the.love.therapist. I post every day and I post in my stories and um, I've been trying to jump on and do more lives and connect with people um, in more just intimate ways. It's Instagram has been one of my favorite places to just build community because we get to connect with people from all over the world. And so I'm also creating a little support group at the end of this month for the month of January, um, because I just, I want to create that space and the opportunity for uh, my community and my followers to support each other, to receive more support from me and to just get to know everyone better. So um, Instagram. And then I also have a website, jordanandrea.com, where you can learn about the other services that I offer and just learn a little bit more about me on my website. Beautiful. So I'll put the links to at the love dot, at the love dot, the love dot therapist. <laughs> 
<laughs> Sorry, my dots came out all disorganized. Um, and Jordan, Andre, I'll put those links in the show notes so listeners can easily connect in. And also, if you're kind of going, oh, this is something that's really resonating, look out for the support group because this episode will actually be going live in the new year. So the support group will be up and running and something that you can, you know, take active steps to, to find community and connection and continue these conversations because this is, as you said, love is everything. It's such an important area of our lives. So why not invest in ourselves? Yeah, I totally agree. Thank you so much for having me on here today. An absolute pleasure. Thank you for your time. Well, I hope that you found that episode with Jordan as educational, as inspirational, and just really, really practical in terms of managing conflict challenges that do come up in relationship. You know, things are not always smooth sailing. We don't always speak the same language, but hopefully with the tips and tricks shared here today, things will feel a little bit clearer. So of course, head to the dot love dot therapist on Instagram to keep up to date with what Jordan's up to there and to jordanandrea.com to check out what's going on with all of the wonderful services she's offering as the love therapist. I hope that you stay well and I look forward to dropping into your earbuds in a fortnight. All right, bye for now. Thanks for joining us this week on the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast. Please visit drcaitlin.com to connect, find show notes, other episodes, and to subscribe. While you're at it, if you find value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating or perhaps simply tell a friend about the show. Wisdom for Wellbeing is not a substitute for professional, individualized mental health treatment. If you are in crisis, please contact 000, your local emergency number if you are outside of Australia, or attend your local hospital ED.